I have admired Dr. DeFrancis' work uh, from afar, uh, so it's really a delight to have her with us today. Um, her 2015 book, uh, Sex Difference in Christian Theology, Male, Female, and Intersex in the Image of God, is one of a very small handful of really important affirming theology books that are coming from the then evangelical and now post-evangelical sector. Um, affirming theology makes one a post-evangelical these days, so as we've learned. So Dr. DeFranza is a scholar with scholar chops, plus the courage to pay a price for her scholarship. She was at a respected evangelical college and went public as LGBTQIA affirming, knowing that it would not be a good career move. Um, I'm really describing the tip of a very big iceberg of cost. So I think Dr. DeFranza's demonstrated courage accounts for the moral authority that comes through in her writing and in her speaking, as you will soon discern. So I want to urge you to add sex difference in Christian theology to your library if you don't already have it. And I especially want to recommend Dr. DeFranza's award-winning documentary, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Scripture and the New Science of Gender. I, I actually cannot think of a better resource to introduce this topic uh, to a congregation or a church group. I really wish it had been, you'd been a little quicker on the uptake and gotten this thing ready when I really needed it some years ago, Dr. DeFranza. So it, it includes information, reflection on scripture, um, and also compellingly the stories of LGBTQIA people, including Dr. DeFranza's colleague, Anunnaki Ray Marquez, who'll be sharing the podium with her. So go to megandefranza.com for all her resources. And for heaven's sake, unless you're in abject poverty, buy something. But first, let's welcome Megan DeFranza dot here right now. Take it away. Thanks, Ken. You're too kind. And I have quoted you in some of my texts that have come out since that 2015 one. So I want people to be aware of those too. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. I came to the study of gender and theology I went to seminary in order to untangle the mixed messages I got as a Christian girl <laughs> growing up in non-denominational white conservative churches where women didn't get behind the pulpit. They didn't teach adult Sunday school classes. They didn't even pass the offering plate. So part of my journey into studying scripture and gender began with trying to figure out how can I serve God and not accidentally sin because I was born into a woman's body. And that has been a long, a long study, six years in seminary and then seven years um, in my doctoral program at Marquette. And one of the things that frustrated me in the process was I would read liberals and conservatives all on what's the significance of gender. And all of them were working off of stereotypes and not off of real life experience. I felt like the stereotypes in all of these books, which people were making into big theological claims didn't match my life as a pious Christian, deeply devoted to following Jesus and it didn't match many of the people I knew. So I started looking at 
the science because I wanted to find out, is there anything we can say about all men and all women in all cultures across history? You know, is there anything that we can all agree on? And as I got into the science, I realized, wow, this is a lot more complex than I thought it was. And asking if it's just male and female isn't enough because then I learned there are people for whom the categories of male and female are insufficient. And as I met them, met intersex Christians, I realized their marginalization in the church was so much greater than anything I experienced as a woman in a patriarchal church context. They have been written out of existence um, in, through church history. We're going to talk about how that happened. And so I really became converted to raising um, intersex voices, and which is why we created the documentary. And I'm going to show you a little clip of that with includes Anunnaki's story, which will get us going. Anunnaki is a dear friend of mine, a brilliant intersex activist. He has a TEDx talk um, and he's a seminarian working on his Master of Divinity. And so he's gonna join us in conversation after. But why don't we turn to the video now? Stories are powerful. Some bring us comfort. Others feel so threatening, we'd rather not hear them. Most of us think there are two boxes. Our stories show us only two kinds of people. Yet some of our ancient religious traditions recognize many sex variations. We are rediscovering people who are born with differences of sex development, whose bodies don't fit what we thought we knew about male and female. This is now called intersex. Because their differences make us anxious, Many intersex children and adults suffer permanent harm. Some of us think God only wants male or female and use religion to shame intersex people, justifying surgeries to erase them. But for some intersex people, religious faith has been a source of hope and healing. These stories of intersex and faith offer healing, not only to those born intersex, but to anyone with the courage to listen. I was born in 1967 with natural variation, which is now known as intersex. I was assigned female when that wasn't my true gender. And by three and four years old, that's when my hell began. My parents were both devout Catholics. We went to church every single Sunday, absolutely every single Sunday without a hitch. I was baptized as a baby. I experienced um, my first communion in a white dress. My parents were pretty loving and tolerant people in the world. You know, they had their problems though when it came to accepting gender variant type people. I never really grew up. And I think the only way I could describe how I didn't grow up is I was never allowed to exist. I was never allowed to exist until the last three years of my life. So I finally get to grow up. 
course, like all relationships, we've had our ups and downs, pretty big ups, pretty big downs, but, <laughs> but we, we've made it through a lot, good and bad, and I mean, I still love them. We got married in 95, and this might surprise the world, but I wanted to appear more female. I wanted to not have the hormonal issues. When I was younger, I knew I had no business being a parent. It wasn't for quite a few years. We, then we decided, you know, we, you're never ready, but we had lots of miscarriages. It was hard having the babies because we, we didn't know if they were going to go to term, so there was a lot of loss there. We had our two, then we had adopted the one and everything, newborn, that was a handful. But they're great and they're all good kids. In order to lower a testosterone that's naturally higher and to help a person to appear female, you get put on testosterone blockers. And in order to enhance female characteristics, if you have lower estrogen, you're given more hormones. By the 1990s, I was doing everything I could to diligently um, conform to the female gender and appearance. So years and years and years of doing this literally landed me in a wheelchair and had at one point even got up to 235 pounds. 46 years of gender performance was enough. The outcome of that was I had no emotion. I became the living dead. Um, so it wasn't even a performance at the end. I was not, I was, I had successfully been erased. I had a plan to end it all. I had enough um, pills and everything um, so that I didn't have to suffer anymore. Thankfully, I am a survivor and I started to also have some common sense about my family. I found a man um, who helps runaway teens and obviously I'm not a teenager but I decided to call him because I figured well maybe he he could help me. He called me and said he had run away from home, was not sure what he was doing, how he was doing. To me, it sounded desperate. I got in the car and drove, found my way there, and lo and behold, there he was, and we talked for hours and hours. He was gonna end his life. Look at the way the life had been. I'm married, I have children, I have a husband. Now all of a sudden, I'm telling the world I want to be recognized as a male, where I've always been female before. I mean, you know how many people you turn off by that. He lost his family and lots of friends. I mean, tons of them. Just because just of deciding to live as male, all of a sudden they can't be friends with you anymore. All I can say is, poor Naki, what a mess. And all I did was say, I'm, I'm still available whenever you need me. You know, whatever I can do, I will do. John, he, he was a miracle with what he did. I started to feel a little bit of hope. So here we are, James and I are literally talking and what ended up happening ultimately is I decided to say no to every intervention that was creating a female. And it was surprising how quickly he improved. That was wonderful. I mean, neither of us expected him to get 
that much healthier. The church was a real comfort place for me. So when we moved to Florida, we actually started going back. When we started the church here, I was in a wheelchair. So they knew me in a wheelchair. That summer, I'd emerged out of my chair to a cane. The priest started seeing like a rock star emerge. So he was celebrating that I was out of a chair. They saw it. They saw the entire rehabilitation. So when I came to him, to explain to him who I am and what I realized and awakened to and the medical piece of it. He was like a deer in the headlights. He didn't know what to do. And he had to speak to the bishop and he had to speak to people higher up. And I'm being told that we are welcome to stay at the church. However, we would not, both of us would no longer be able to receive the Eucharist. It was a horrible disappointment. You know, because there was a lot of comfort. They gave a lot of comfort. You know, when you're going to be 50 years old and you've had 18 surgeries and you've suffered, and you finally, for the last two and a half years, have finally, finally get to live your authentic self, you feel robbed. You know, you're no doubt celebrating that you you have made it. That's it's not that kind of negativity because I absolutely am absolutely I am for the first time experiencing heaven on earth. So there's a lot of lot a lot of good things, a lot of good things. However, I'm still 50 with a metabolic condition, and it does it angers me. It angers me a lot. I want the world to realize that. We exist, that they can't erase us anymore. I want the government and the doctors to realize that this is about real life people. If there are laws to protect all of us, that will be my restitution. everyone thanks for watching that so i'm going to start diving into more information for us using my screen here ananaki can you talk about the various ways that intersex can show up in the body while i try to find my slides that just disappeared yes yeah, sure we like to say intersex traits instead of disorder or syndrome now and it can include your gonads, so that could be your ovaries, your testicles. It can involve your reproductive system. It can involve your genitals, and it can involve your hormones. It could be one or an assortment of all of those. And there's different ways the medical community acknowledges this, and typically it is as a diagnosis. As you can see, I'm one of the activists out there that typically will will stray away from that and here we go she has her slide go for it megan thanks intersex variations show up in many different ways in the body at the genetic level at the gonadal level whether you have ovaries or testes or 
gonads with ovarian and testicular tissue in the same gonad, or maybe you have one testis and one ovary. That of course affects what kinds of hormone production happens as children develop both in the womb and after they're born. And sometimes it's the, the gonads are secreting typical amounts of hormones, but the cells can't process those hormones. The cell reception doesn't always work. Um, and so that will bring certain changes to how sex development happens in the body. It can be seen in internal reproductive organs, sometimes in genitals. Intersex people, the majority of them are not identified at birth from genitals that look different from what's typical for male and female, but there are a good number that are. And then of course, variations can happen in secondary sex characteristics that happen at puberty. Some of the kinds of intersex, and there's a lot of medical terms here, and this is one of the challenges of being intersex and doing intersex advocacy is this difficult relationship with the medical community. But we'll just use this language. Um, Anunnaki has CAH, and you learned a little bit about that in the film. Another very common kind of intersex is androgen and sensitivity, which is what I was just mentioning when the, so here we have XY, which is your typical male pattern with testes, but because the cells can't process the higher amounts of androgens that those testes are producing, the genitals remain looking female because we all start out looking female in the womb. And at puberty, there's no menstruation. These folks have XY, have testes, but no uterus, often a small, short vagina, but no cervix. Um, but when they're born, they look like typical girls. And they're often discovered at <clears throat> puberty when they don't menstruate. And it's quite a surprise. A number of people find out about their intersex variations when they go for fertility treatments, um, if they're having trouble getting pregnant and they'll discover, oh wait, maybe I am XXY and I have low levels of testosterone and a low sperm count. And then, you know, the, I throw this one in there just to the five alpha reductase deficiency syndrome, because it's just, I mean, nature <laughs> does wild things. So these kids have XY chromosomes, their genitals look female, and at puberty, testes descend into those, into the labia, which becomes scrotum, the clitoris enlarges for, to a functioning penis, and they transition to living as a man. Now in the United States, when they're identified, they're castrated so that they will stay looking female. But in cultures where this technology is not available and through you know, millennia, cultures where this particular intersex trait was common, they had language and space in their community for people who would make this transition over. It was not uncommon in the Dominican Republic where they called it uh, gueva doches, like eggs at 12 when the testes descend. So that's another one that kind of usually blows people's mind. <laughs> As I mentioned, you can have one ovary or one testis that's called ovotestis, or your gonads can be a combination of testicular tissue and ovarian tissue. Many people ask, 
how common intersex is. My slides just deleted themselves. Anunnaki, can you talk about frequency rates and human rights violations? Why don't we know about intersex while I figure this out? Sure, no problem. The typical rate of intersex is 1.7 to 2%. So that's as common as people with redheads. And most people who have, I mean, that's a lot of, I do believe the number was around 135 million people, if I do recall. And so we're not really that rare. There are also certain scholars like Dr. Um, Kerry Costello, they're an intersex trans professor at Wisconsin that actually believes that intersex traits could possibly be even as high as one in 150. Um, so it's very controversial right this minute. And why don't we know about it? I think one of the biggest reasons why we're not hearing about this is where you are literally being erased as a diagnosis. So you get a diagnosis when you're born or when, it's, when it is discovered that you do have intersex traits. Um, I, for one, didn't even call it intersex until I was 46 years old. For example, congenital adrenal hyperplasia is one of those ways of being born intersex. Um, to this day, even if you go to some of the organizations, they will not call it intersex. They want to medicalize it. They want us to believe we are a disorder of sex development. Most children that are 46XX, we assume they're going to be female, they're going to be girls. Um, when you have intersex traits like me, you know, I have a whole mixture of different traits, uh, you know, vagina and ovaries, uh, uterus on top of a prostate, on top of a higher testosterone level. It becomes very controversial, our existence, and we start to have our human rights violated. And I do believe it's due to being confused with transgender and gay. It becomes very controversial when with all the transphobia and the homophobia out in the world. So that collateral damage of all that transphobia and homophobia comes down on us, especially when we're assigned wrong at birth. So you, you have a situation where you don't even truly know you're transgender, but yet you're going against your birth assignment being told, now you have to only go to transgender safe doctors. And even out of that list, um, those transgender safe doctors will say you're too complicated as an intersex person. So you're shoved off even from that community. So it's, it's really quite a heartache to be born intersex. Thank you so much for, for sharing about that. And um, Megan actually looks like she popped off Zoom. So I was thinking, um, just giving her a second to um, pop back on. I'm gonna pay attention to the attendees. I can continue to speak until she comes back. Um, I can wing it. I don't know what her slides were, but I can continue to speak from my own lived experience. Sometimes, um, intersex people do have a lot to do with transgender people. And I could share how we have to be really careful about those assumptions. Just because an intersex person is assigned wrong doesn't always mean they're transgender. In my case, I'm okay saying I have trans intersectionality. I'm okay with saying I have a lot in common with trans men. However, my intersex friend that I speak about in my TED talk, Born Intersex, We Are Human, their name is Brian. They survived horrific 
genital surgeries that were non-consenting as a child, like me, they had congenital adrenal hyperplasia, like me, 46XX, you would assume this is going to be a girl, that they should be female. They removed their phallus. They created a, vaginal, a vagina. Um, this person was horrendously violated. We do not want to call them a trans man. So we really have to listen with care when somebody comes through that door and we're meeting them for the first time. So Google Slides decided to um, delete all of my slides <laughs> while I was talking. So I, I have a different version of this. It's just that the uh, fonts are not as pretty as they were <laughs> on the other one, but we can work with it. All right. We talked about how common intersex is and why we don't know intersex people. But surprisingly, intersex was not something that ancient Christians and Jews didn't know about. They were actually very well known in the ancient world. The rabbis actually created extra categories to classify children who were born who didn't look completely male or completely female. And I have those in front of you here. Androgynos was the term they used for a child that looked equally male and female. Ilonit were persons with underdeveloped genitals, which still appeared more feminine. And then naturally born eunuchs appear more on the masculine side. And then Tum Tum is a name for, we're not yet sure, but we think it'll become clear later. Well, what's so fascinating is this, this term, the naturally born eunuch, actually shows up in Matthew 19 when Jesus is being asked a question about divorce. Can I divorce my wife for burning the toast? <laughs> he says, haven't you read, and he quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God made them male and female, the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate. And his disciples were like, well, if we can't get out of it, maybe we just shouldn't marry to begin with. And Jesus says, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. And this is a literal translation of the Greek here. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can, or who can figure out what it is that Jesus is talking about. This is, I have a 50 pages in my book on the history of the interpretation of this passage, for those of you who really want to know more about it. Um, but here Jesus is using one of those categories that the eunuchs had created, the eunuch from birth. Um, the Saris Chama, as it is in Hebrew, a eunuch of the sun. From the first day the sun shone on this child, they knew this one was different. Eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others, these were castrated men. They were very common in the ancient world. It was common to castrate boy slaves and um, raise them up as servants in aristocratic households. They were also very high-priced sex slaves, um, so castration was not uncommon in the ancient world. So those would have been those eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. So what on earth are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? We'll come back to that. The point is, 
ancient Christians and Jews knew that the categories of male and female were not enough. We know this language of eunuch. You think about the barren women in the Old Testament. Some of them may have had complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. Do we know? Or some other kind of intersex variation that made it difficult to get pregnant. Um, we hear language sometimes of hermaphrodites. There's myths about hermaphrodites in that language. We can talk a little bit about whether that's good to be using or not good to be using. We don't we use the term intersex now, but this is the term that we find when we research the ancient literature. And this quote is actually from Augustine's City of God, which many people have read. It's, a, it's not an unknown text, especially for those who go to seminary. But here he says that as for androgynes, also called hermaphrodites, they're certainly very rare. And yet it's difficult to find periods when there are no examples of human beings possessing the characteristics of both sexes in such a way that it is a matter of doubt how they should be classified. However, the prevalent usage has called them masculine, assigning them to the better sex. So here is an example of Augustine saying, yeah, everybody knows about intersex people. When I read that, I was like, what? No, everybody does not know about intersex people. I certainly didn't know, you know, in the 21st century. So I, I did a lot of work reading ancient church history and other ancient literature, searching for, you know, information on eunuchs, natural eunuchs and hermaphrodites, all of these terms. It was not easy to be a eunuch, one might believe. So eunuchs were known, but there are some passages about eunuchs that make it a little challenging. In Deuteronomy 23.1, we see no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. So no castrated eunuch, no eunuch made by man could worship, basically could go to church with ancient Israel. They couldn't worship there. But in the oral tradition, which interprets Torah, the you know first five books of the Old Testament, they made provisions for the inclusion of naturally born eunuchs in the community. They would pull from the laws for men and the laws for women and create the, the religious laws that would apply to those who fell into these middle categories. And it still happens today in Jewish communities. So eunuchs were a third category in religious law, what I just explained, where they're pulling from the laws for men and laws for women and creating different laws um, for naturally born eunuchs. They were considered a third legal category under Roman law, although the laws changed depending on who was in power. So not just in ancient Israel, but in, in the first century to the first few centuries AD. So we have this term eunuch, and now we're gonna look for some other places where it shows up in scripture. As you can imagine with Deuteronomy 23, you can't come and worship in the assembly. Eunuchs might be a little sad if growing up in the community of Israel. And some of them complained to God. And here through the prophet Isaiah, God is responding to them. He says, do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuchs say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, 
and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Eunuchs are promised a future where they're not going to be perpetuating their name like any good Jewish boy would do by having sons who beget sons who beget sons. But God is saying, I am going to give you an everlasting name. You'll notice the connection between eunuch and foreigner here. Many scholars believe that the prohibition we find here in Deuteronomy 23, it's in the context of all of these laws that are to remind Israel that they should be separate. Don't marry the people from the surrounding cultures who worship other gods, like be separate and just tons of laws, like don't plant these seeds next to each other. Don't weave two kinds of cloth together. The, the theme of separation we see there. So castration was often also associated with foreigners, which is why I pointed out, because you see the foreigner here in this passage. The second part of this passage it says, and foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and love the name of the Lord and be his servants and keep the Sabbath and don't profane it and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now I've heard that last part of the last verse here many times, but it wasn't until I was studying this that I actually read the whole context. Here, all of a the sudden, they're going from not being able to worship with Israel to having their offerings and sacrifices accepted on the altar. God is doing something different in this time in Israel's history than what was happening back in the laws for Deuteronomy. So we see a shift in how we're talking about eunuchs. And then we see a shift when we get to the New Testament, um, a very important eunuch that many of you will be familiar with in Acts chapter eight, where we see that an angel of Lord told Philip to go to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, where there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, which is very, um, makes a lot of sense because as I said, eunuchs were often high slaves in aristocratic households. And sometimes there are really high ranking slaves. And he was one of those to the queen in charge of her entire treasury. And he'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his char chariot and reading none other than the prophet Isaiah. He is reading Isaiah and asked, Philip asked to, says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, no. And why, Philip gets up in the chair and starts to explain to him the good news about Jesus, which is what we see here in this verse. And then we have this question arise in their conversation. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Now that we've looked at some of the passages about eunuchs not being welcome, in the assembly of Israel, you can understand why this guy might say, wait a minute, I'm in a different category from a lot of other people. He just traveled thousands of miles from Ethiopia to Jerusalem in a bumpy chariot 
uh, to worship and could only get into the court of foreigners. So there's the court of Gentiles and the court of women and court of men and then the Holy of Holies. So you can only get so close to God if you're not a Jew or if you're a woman. And if you're a man, I mean, the priest gets to go in once a year and hopes he doesn't die in the process. But there's so many layers between closeness to God for someone like this particular eunuch who is also a foreigner. And so it's a real question, like, what is my status going to be if I follow this rabbi Jesus? I just wish that the author, Luke, had told us what Philip's answer was to him, but it's not recorded. I wonder if it wouldn't have been something like Galatians 3, where it says, as many as you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek or Ethiopian. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to his promise. We don't know if Philip said that, but it certainly would have worked. We know that someone commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down and Philip baptized him and then went on his way. So we see this progression of things changing. We have different eunuchs as outsiders and then eunuchs being baptized. These, this third category um, in Jewish law and in Roman law at the time. Our job as Christians who study the Bible are to say, how do we, how do we understand all of this in the, in the larger context? We see eunuchs not welcome in Deuteronomy, giving promises in Isaiah, Jesus speaking well of eunuchs in Matthew 19, 12, where he says that his disciples should learn from eunuchs. But how do we put all of this together with the passages that we're most familiar with when we think about the Bible and gender? And that this is where we have to go back to the book of Genesis. Um, and look at things again for a way. So how can we find a theological lens where we can make sense of the Genesis narrative and Isaiah and Matthew and Acts? But it's important to note when you study the first chapters of Genesis, much of this is Hebrew poetry with themes. And one of the major themes is separation. God separated the light from the darkness. God said, separate the waters from the waters. And then God creates humankind in God's image. Male and female, God creates them and blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And in the next chapter, we get the separation of Eve from Adam in chapter two. Um, but here, this theme of separation, even the animals are separated into different categories. The fish who are in the sea, the birds who are in the air, the living things upon the ground. There's no mention of frogs who come in and out of the water or freshwater creatures or lobsters who are not fish, but do live in the sea or penguins who don't fly. There are many more creatures than fit into these categories. But 
these categories are broad brushstrokes that, you know, we can fit most of the animals into those. And I've never heard an Old Testament scholar interpret this passage and say, look, amphibians, they are proof of the fall because they don't fit into the categories we find in Genesis chapter one. They don't fit with fish of the sea, birds of the air, or living things that move on the ground because they're in between two categories. No one says that. But when people, a lot of Christians, when they first hear about intersects, they think, oh, the fall, you know, not how God wanted it to be. But there are many things that are not in this passage that are in between spaces. We hear light and darkness and day and night, but there's nothing about dawn and dusk, which, you know, is my favorite times to look at the sky. We hear about waters being separated from waters, but there's nothing about the shore. There's nothing about deltas or estuaries or places where fresh water and salt water meet. There's so many more features of the world that don't fit into those categories, but overlap them and are connected to them. And so why do we not, why can we not use that same logic to understand male and female as broad categories that most people fit into, but not excluding those who are born in between. And as I wrestled with the text and I tried to think, how do I, how do we think of Adam and Eve? It's like, this is the opening chapter of the Bible. It's really important. We know that. So how do we give it its proper place and also understand it in the context of all of scripture? And so I came up with thinking of, I grew up taught that Adam and Eve were the pattern of what it means to be human. They were God's best and they were the exclusive model. But I started to wonder if we couldn't consider them parents rather than the pattern. Parents at the beginning of the story, the statistical majority. So there's no biblical way <laughs> to decide which of these interpretations is right, is biblical, is, is orthodox. These are all interpretive lenses that we're bringing to Genesis to say, how should we understand Adam and Eve? And we have to say which of these fits the context of all of the Bible. And I think these latter ones, looking at Adam and Eve as parents at the beginning of a story that represent most humans in a story that's going to include so many more as the story progresses. I like the understanding them not as the form, the ideal form of masculinity and femininity to which we must all conform, but what if they're the fountainheads of all the beautiful variety of human beings who come after? And we have to decide, is this interpretation something we can support by other scriptures? And I think it is when we think about the place of Adam and Eve at the beginning in Eden, there are other things that are not in the Garden of Eden. There's not diversity beyond male and female. There's not hybrid creatures that we've talked about. And there are not 
different kinds of humans who belong to different tribes and languages and people groups. No ethnic differences. We're all, you know, Adam and Eve, we assume are the same family. So the question for us is, do, do we think of Eden as something we're trying to get back to? Or is it the beginning of the story that ends somewhere else? And the eschaton is just a fancy theological word for the end, the new creation, the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. And in Revelation, we're told that in that new creation, uh, John is given a vision of a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language worshiping before the throne. We have diversity at the end of the story that we don't have at the beginning of the story. And this is where we have to understand that the Christian story is not a story of perfection, fall, and return. It's actually a linear story where it has a beginning and it's going somewhere and it's getting more complex as it goes along. And then we see, we're given hints as to what it's going to look like at the end. Where I don't think we're trying to get back to Adam and Eve, but we're moving toward a future that's more diverse than the garden, open to us by Christ and made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives.